Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall and the C86 Show. Another special, because this week I was going through the archives and came across this one from Jake Schillingford. What the, I was going to say one-time member. He is the member well, he is my life story. So um, I think this was done in 2015, sometime when he was about to embark on a tour. Um, this is the interview, but before we have the quality chat, I think we'll play a track just to get you into the party mood. Because let's face it, my life story were all about the show. And this is Suited and Booted.
What a voice. There you go. That's Jake Shillingford from My Life Story. And I do believe they have an album coming out this coming autumn. However, this is an interview that I uh, dug up from the archives, recorded in 2015, when I do believe My Life Story were about to embark on an autumn tour. This is the interview, and this is the first part and only part, in fact, where I had mentioned um, about the tour. So don't get too confused. It's uh, only four years ago this interview took place. But anyway, Jake, tell us more. So how That's did that, right, yeah. So how did this all come together? Because obviously you were big in the, in the wonderful world that was the 90s and did lots of stuff and then sort of disappeared and then occasionally come back. But this seems to be a bit more of a, a serious tour this time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, those, are the, the, those, those are the listeners that know My Life Street well uh, will know that uh, we were a large band, I mean, a 12-piece band, um, very much a product of the 90s, you know, 12 Toffees bands could get could sign a record deal in the nineties. Um, um, so you know, we we just because of the and you know the orchestral elements of the music, we would often. I mean, we toured a lot in the nineties, but we you know we had quite a lot of support from record labels. And then uh, a bit later on in our career, we tended to let the mountain come to Mohammed and do a, sort of a big London show. Um, but the problem I found with that was being the, the, the writer of the band and the front man of the band is that, you know, doing one big show in London was a, took a lot of organising. And um, But actually, the, 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 the biggest thing was wanting to just get back on the tour bus the next morning and do another one. You know, it, it seemed odd doing all that work for just one show. So I decided to, um, uh, you know, sort of go more traditional route, really, and um, and 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 sort of uh, create a smaller lineup for my life story that would be able to go around and tour them, and uh, you know, and and reach the reach the outskirts of the UK, which is the which is the idea of this particular um, foray. Fantastic, yeah, because you were one of the first bands who brought in this kind of orchestral quality that hadn't been seen seen since say Deep Purple who used to do things with the London Philharmonic in the 70s but apart from Deep Purple and such like most people hadn't sort of got that string section and then suddenly you did it and then everyone else did it didn't they so you were sort of one of the first acts to sort of bring that quality in yeah certainly certainly in the 90s we were yeah we were very much known for it I mean I think I mean I agree with you I think I think I think the 70s were along with you know Bass Yellow uh, also, you know, very known, very much known for, for bringing orchestral elements into rock music. And then, I suppose in the 80s, uh, I was a big fan of, of of bands, I suppose, like ABC and and um, Mark Armand, uh, who particularly thought did some great string arrangements and and um, you know, the sort of managed to work those with the sort of seedier side of pop. And yeah, in the 90s, um, during during the sort of early 90s, when when grunge was really happening, I mean, I I just you know, I remember t- very much taking a, you know, a bold decision to sort of go against the grain, really, and um, and and sort of deliberately set up this sort of very, you know, rather fay, glamorous pop band with, with, and we had no guitars. I mean, we we deliberately, um, you know, didn't have any to go against the grain and to go against, you know, the rock music that was going on at that time, just to, so that we could stick out. And that 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 proved to really work. And then. Um, and then, yeah, you know, uh, everybody around at the time, from uh, Morrissey through to Beth Orton, um, you know, then you know, sort of called us up and asked if they could use our our string section. Actually, in a in a nice sort of about 
uh, sort of end to it. And in fact, even Mark Armand himself um, ended up. We ended up working with him. So, so uh, yeah, we yeah we did become. Well, I think that was, I think was um, Paul. Uh, that was uh, Mark Harmon and PJ Proby, didn't he? PJ Proby, yeah. I mean, PJ. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, you know, fan of PJ Proby's work. You know that. You know, I think, I think, you know, in the '90s, I felt that we'd really that that the sort of we'd lost the art of the crooner, and I suppose that's one of the things I was 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 trying to use those influences in my own work. But certainly now, you know, I feel that. You know, I love those people like Anthony Newley and, and PJ Proby. You know, uh, you know, artists that really influence people like David Bowie. You know, I think I think there's a place for uh, for that sort of type of entertainer. You know, I think that they're amazing. Absolutely, because I can remember I, we came down to Camden for your is it month of Sundays for one of those particular dates. Oh well, that's notorious. That was we were yeah we were essentially essentially going to going to give up at that point because we we put out an album on an indie label which was Mornington Crescent, our first album and. And uh, we we really couldn't. Find, we were finding it difficult to sort of go up to the next level. And we, you know, we we made a statement. I made a statement saying, you know, come and get to the record industry. You know, come and sign us. Or, you know, we you know we can't really carry on much without the, your support. Well, that was quite interesting because you were that that album was produced by the one and only Giles Martin, who's the father, <laughs> um, son of obviously of George Martin from the Beatles fame. So obviously, you'd got sort of quite good contacts, and you'd you know with that particular debut album, it did have a lot of classic songs on it. Mm. Well, that that was another fascinating story because, and this is the honest truth, Giles Martin um, came up to me. Uh, we, were, we did a gig at the Marquee. Um, and came up to me and said, you know, hi, I'm Giles Martin. Well, I suppose the way he said it, he assumed that I would know exactly who he was. <laughs> and I, I, you know, Martin is quite a common surname. Yes. And he said, you know, um, do you want to come and record at my dad's studio? And I, even then the penny didn't drop. And um, he, he said it's in Belsize Park. And I was actually living in Belsize Park, which is sort of a couple of tube stops north of Camden, where obviously the sort of burgeoning Britpop scene was. And... Um, I, I thought, oh great, you know, what's the number? And he told me the number, and it, it was literally a minute from from the bedsit that I was actually living in at the time. And I remember trying to find it, and all I could see was this huge church, you know, which which ultimately ended up being Air Lindhurst, which is you know one of the biggest recording studios in Europe now, and it was just being built at the time. And it just took. A, it, what was great is I, I had my epiphany standing outside the church, <laughs> looking at it, and suddenly, like the like the end of Usual Suspects, where he suddenly puts everything together and pieces all the the the, the clues to find out, you know, what what the actual. Uh, uh, nice. Culmination of the story was. I realised that I, yeah, I, was, I, I had been talking to George Martin's son, so that was a quite an interesting <laughs> beginning of uh, of, of uh, my career. Absolutely. But with that particular that run for that that one month, the the month of Sundays, you did sort of even then you were very serious because I seem to remember you had a costume change for every song. Yeah, we used to do that. I don't know if you remember as well. One something, something that people can't remember. We had a we had a friend of ours going outside the uh, venue with a placard with the end of the world is nigh, um, suggesting that if we were, if we didn't get signed, that you know that it would be the end of the world, and that you know, well, you know, I mean, we had a big part to play in Britpop, so you never know. But uh, yeah, it was it was an amazing. It's amazing what you can do if you throw your heart and soul and your life on the line and. You know, um, and it proved to really work. And uh, yeah, I mean, the costume changes was just another. You know, that, you know, that's, you know, there was a lot of great bands around at the time, but you know, the the idea, the fashions, and the trends at the time was really to to wear the clothes that you know you rehearse in, you know, and to wear the same clothes that you know the sort of people would would maybe wear just to go to gigs. And I wanted to separate 
gigs. I mean, we, in fact, we refuse to use the G word. We would always call them shows. Right. Um, so you don't have a mile after a gig, you have a mile after a show. And uh, and we, in fact, um, we even enforced uh, a door address policy uh, at our gigs, which I think we're the first and only band ever to have a, a dress policy on the door of a of a normal, you know, sort of uh, tour circuit gig. I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen for this tour, <laughs> but um, uh, but it was amazing when we did it because a lot of people really got into it. And I think that, you know, when you, um, you know, there's been many many bands that have, you know. Um, where I suppose Manic Street Preachers, etc., where people dress up to the shows, and, and Mile High Street are no different. That you know, um, I think people treat a Mile High Street gig as something a bit more than, uh, like I said, the G word, and it's more of an S word. Yeah, absolutely. Because actually, Britpop was a bit odd. I mean, I know every category gets a bit. No one wants to be part of it, do they? I remember recently talking to friends about the great C86, and, and everyone tries to deny they were part of it, but you think, well, actually, as a punter, you do all sound a bit the same, and, and so you got thrown in with the Britpop period, but there were mm. definitely two different types, weren't there? There was the lads, mm. like at Blur and Oasis, and mm -hmm. then you got the, I suppose, My Life Story, Divine Comedy, the Tindersticks, mm -hmm. and even Pulp, so there was kind of an interesting difference. Mm. And Swade, I'd say Swade were in that, um, you know, very much sort of leaders of that. Yeah, and I think that you know, maybe with the exception of Blow, who who did have a who did did have another side to what they were about. It's just that I think Damon really pushed the lad thing in order to in order to to you know gain a bit more traction and 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 you know try and get more people to listen to to them. But um, you know, I think that the 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 early Britpop bands did come from camp. They came from or hanging around that area. I mean, we re we rehearsed in the same rehearsal. Um, uh, rooms as the Tindersticks. It was us and the Tindersticks were the first two bands to use this particular rehearsal complex called the Joint in uh, Old Street. You know, and there was, you know, we were all um, we're all hanging out, out together to a certain extent. So, and there was a drive, I think, certainly in London and the and the and the sort of squats and bedsits of Camden to to try and do something that that had a lot more of a art school. Um, you know, kind of feel to it, and you know, a, a, a real close attention to lyrics, uh, and, and particularly arrangement. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and really trying to get back to sort of you know classic songwriting, yeah. and um, you know, and I suppose obviously Pulp offered that as well from Sheffield, but I think particularly, you know, it, really, it did really seem to resonate um, down in down in uh, in London, and then of course I suppose then maybe yeah, maybe the, the sort of bands from the north tended to be a bit. A bit, uh, maybe sort of tapping a little bit more with um, sort of more the sort of working class kind of values that came from the 60s and the mod culture and things like that. So there were, there were, the, you're right, there were those two things together. But you know, I suppose you know, so it's the Roxy Music Art School thing, isn't it? Versus um, versus yeah. I don't know, Northern Soul, but well, you know, they can both live together. It's David Bowie against Slade, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, it's like you know, one—they're yeah. both glam, but one was really glam, and one was just blokes with eyeliner or sweet, you know, Slade and Sweet and David Bowie. But you know, they—they they might all go yeah. in the same glam sort of compilation album. But there is definitely a different. Yes, I essence. think that's a very valid point, actually. But I mean, I—I th I think to, I mean for me, actually, you know, probably if if I was to be really honest, and I, I think out of those, I mean, I've listened to Sweet probably more than dating cars and doing paper rounds was uh, was blockbuster. I bought my own records, and I was, you know, I was very young at the time. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, you know, and it, it, it I, there, there was something about, 
yeah, power the power of of, of those kind of glam bands. I think it, you know it's amazing. I I think Sweet really are like a prototype sort of punk band. They yeah. sound they really sound like well the Clash really sound like the Sweet if you if you sort of dissect quite a lot of their chord progressions and stuff. But anyway, that's another conversation. Yes. Well, luckily it wasn't Gary Glitter anyway because that could have, <laughs> that could have also been the first single because we all wanted to be in Gary's gang back in the seventies. We did, yeah. And I, actually, I, I was quite. It was interesting actually because I saw. Um, I've noticed that he's sort of been airbrushed out of history, really, which is it's quite weird um, for you know for, for in, in sort of in history for someone to actually be removed. You know, yeah. I mean, Hitler isn't sort of people don't you know just ignore that he wasn't there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's quite odd when um, yeah, and Lieber and Stoller and all those sort of um, you know oh sort of Ch- uh, Chapman and Chin, isn't it? Who wrote all the, the sort of Gary Bliss stuff? I mean, those people. Obviously, um, you know, they're not getting, they're not getting a, the royalties that they a, richly deserve. There was a huge compilation, glam compilation, that really had to have Gary Glitter in it, and um, somehow he wasn't. And I, you know, mm. I grew up at that time when he was, you know, I was just starting to watch mm. Top of the Pops, and here, there he was, and you thought, these are anthems, these are great songs, mm. along, along mm. with Sweet. And I suppose, actually, I would have probably been listening to them before Ziggy Stardust, so, yeah. Exactly, yeah, they're much more accessible, aren't they? Yes, during an 11 year But look, I, we came, because we were huge fans of my life, so we even sort of came to one of your kind of Christmas reunion gigs, which was probably about 07 time as well. Right, okay. And yep, there was, yep. I, I sort of get the impression, because most bands who get together for various naive reasons, all fall out and hate each other. Mm. But there was, there always seemed to be quite a lot of love and mm. for the band and for each other within within mm. such a which such a large combo. So how did you manage to keep that going and to to the point that you even in 2015 want to sort of get on a tour bus with each other? Well, I think that I mean I I didn't quite realise it myself, but I think that when you in in a, in a strange way, the larger the band, the the easier it is for you to get on on a sort of daily basis because there's so many. I mean, we would tour when we would go on tour. It would be two tour buses to fit everybody in the crew, um, and you know, obviously, you know, disagreements, artistic differences, some classic, uh, all these sort of innuendo that comes in the music industry. You know, this, this stuff does go on, but of course, when you're in such a large group. That it tended uh, things tend to be quite diffused because you know you could go off in different groups you know and we would all do different sort of activities during the day so you weren't sort of in each other's pockets all the time and the other thing is that um, you know obviously we were a mixed gendered band um, sixty forty uh, well, nearly, nearly half and half really and and um, relationships did did develop in the group um, which actually in in a way made things easier because you were just um, you know, you're just essentially looking for one entity rather than two people, you know. Right. So, so, so the kind of practicalities of it actually weren't as bad as you think. But there, there are lots of, there are lots of very funny, famous stories within the My Life Street camp of, 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 of just how ridiculous it was to try and tour with such a large amount of people. In fact, Kumar, who was our tour manager, um, he would come, he would often come up with lots of different ideas to try and, you know, get round the herd up to get us, you know, back on the buses and get us onto the next gig. And Slovian um, reaction, it was, it was used to be quite funny. You'd have sort of, you know, the crow, the bass player, snogging a girl in a corner about, you know, 400 yards away from the bus. I'd be talking to somebody somewhere. Everyone would be off all different places, and then the tour manager would blow this whistle, and we'd all appear, you know, because um, if you didn't, if you didn't get on the bus, you'd have to make your own way to the next gig, and that that might sometimes be in another country. So, um, <laughs> you know, you had to be on your best behaviour. That's fantastic. Well, look, the tour starts on the 30th of the month, and then 
it'll be the 21st of November you're in Norwich, no? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I've got a lot of family actually around there, so um, oh, fantastic. I'm particularly looking, looking forward to that show. Yeah. So with the set, I mean, you've got quite a lot of material because um, not only have you got the all the three albums, you've got lots and lots of B-sides as well. So mm. putting this together, has this, you know, what do you think about when you put your shows together and do you change them each night or do you sort of vaguely keep to the same set? Yeah, we, we, we do. We have a core of songs, which obviously the hits, and then, and then yeah, we will be changing the set each night for the tour. I think one of the things, you sort of touched on it earlier, so I think when you have such devoted fans, quite a lot of fans go to a number of shows. So, um, you know, they uh, it's nice to give them a different set, you know, if they're going to come to two or three gigs um, across across the tour. Uh, so... Um, but but the the main the main thing with this is that because I'm I'm going out with a much smaller lineup, we're actually um, we're actually rearranging quite a lot of the songs to suit a, a more sort of rock and roll, um, direct, um, uh, you know, sort of in, uh, instrumentation and arrangement. So actually, um, funny enough, touching on bands like The Sweet, you know, I mean, Milo Street did have you know big sort of glam rock influences, but we used those with strings on the top. Whereas this one, it would be it's a little bit more direct. And actually, one of the things I really found found interesting going back over the songs was, you know, maybe maybe to try and prove a point um, in the context of the times. I think uh, if I was to criticise my own work, I think some of the string arrangements tend to be pretty over the top in terms of embellishments and arrangement, which is kind of what what made, I suppose, bands like Milo Story, Divine Comedy, etc. That's why people like them, I suppose. But... Um, you know, there's always been another side to me, which is the sort of, you know, the passionate punk rocker, really. And, um, you know, and actually what, what, what I'm hoping that my live stream fans are, are going to enjoy from this is actually hearing the songs in a sort of a more direct um, approach, you know, with, with less of the sort of pomp and ceremony and, and, and something that's going to sort of go hit the jugular a bit more. Fantastic. Will you be doing it? Will there be any strings at all or... Um, with, uh, yes, there will be on a couple of the shows. We're, um, the way we're doing it is um, uh, there's a num- uh, it, it, it's an open offer to, to, to various members of my live street to jump on on the stage based uh, depending on where we're <laughs> where they're based and where we're playing. So um, you it's know, organic. Certain, uh, it's, very uh, or- it's organic. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, we you know everyone knows the parts and they- and you know so <laughs> they've only got to show up with a violin. You know, Fantastic. it's not that hard. And we, we've, we've sort of seen quite a lot of My Life Story over the, the, the 90s and a bit into the, um, the noughties. Some of your sets mm. used to sort of keep it quite short, didn't you? About 45 to 50 minutes. Will you be playing mm. a little bit of a longer set? Uh, yeah, we are actually. Yeah, I've, I've bowed under, under pressure. I mean, I always, I always thought that, you know, I think I like to see, I suppose when a band first starts out, you know, I think it's really good to, to, you know, I, I suppose seeing Jesus and Mary Chain's early gigs, you know, just doing sort of 15 minutes, I think there was something really quite sort of, um, I don't know, just leave the crowd wanting more and something really direct about it. But we are going to be doing, yeah, we, we, we will be giving value for money for this tour. <laughs> Is that, that, I, get, I sense that's a small complaint. <laughs> it was, a, well, no, it was fine. But Norwich, we used to sometimes, we've mm. been to London quite a lot and sometimes yeah. would um, go, God, that's over. And they haven't even played this, this and this song. And it was sometimes, and then you spend two hours driving back and still yeah. you know, loved it. But I just sometimes you thought that wasn't the Grateful Dead, was it, with three hours? No, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you've got to get the you've got to get the balance about right. I mean, um, Jason Cooper, my last three's old drummer, is now in the Cure, and uh, you know I'm I'm a huge Cure fan, but 
you know, I, even I would find myself nodding off after, you know, two hours yes, watching I, the cure. I know. Well, me too. I can't even stand for more than, you know, probably 90 minutes. Well, probably 40 minutes is probably my maximum. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, Jake, we're really looking forward to the gig because, frankly, you know, it was always, they were always the band that we loved in the 90s more than any other Oh, band. well, thank you so and, much. Uh, I, it, I really it, appreciate that. It was just great. And we came down to London, like I said, to see one of those month of Sunday gigs and, Saw you at the, I think Cambridge once, and then it was, I think with that poet, the punk poet who, blah, yeah, Murray, uh, Murray Lachlan Young, yeah, who, who yeah. appeared on telly the other night, and um, so it was an exciting period, and you know, and it was that, I suppose, the pulp, the My Life Story, Divine Comedy, that and Tindersticks that I really enjoyed so much during that period. Mm. So mm. it was great that you know you've managed to sort of keep a band, you know, just plugging along rather than or just becomes very no, I, no, that, I don't think that was ever, you know, we we, we did the. To, to make sure that was never going to happen, and um, you know, yeah, you know, we are more like an orchestra than a band, I suppose. So you know, it's um, we're not, you know, we wouldn't be in, in each other's faces as much as that. And that was me in conversation with Jake Shillingford from My Life Story. Uh, that was taken in 2015 from the archives, um, and I do believe they are back with a new album and date. So. We will hopefully have more information and I'll probably get another interview with Jake to find out more about what's happened in the last four years. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. And also all these shows have been archived so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with another track. Uh, this is going to be... Funny, aha, aha, aha. And, uh, sorry, should have rehearsed that. Um, so anyway, have a great week. Superficial burns will mold you into what you are.